You're listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. To learn more about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Today's message comes from Pastor Adam Mutasib. Well, um, I'm going to start by being completely honest with you and Frank that, uh, to be honest, I feel like I got nothing to give today. Um, I actually sat down 10 different times at a blank piece of paper trying to write the sermon, and nothing came out. 10 different times. Like, let me try again. Uh, no, it didn't work this time. It's just one of those days, one of those weeks where I don't really want to talk to 200 different people. <laughs> I'd rather be in bed. You know what I mean? I'd rather, like, curl up and be alone and not have to do this. Can I, am I allowed to say that? Is there, is there freedom and grace to, to be real right now? I don't know. I, I can't even tell you why. I really can't. Maybe, maybe it's another school shooting and little kids were murdered last week. Maybe it's uh, two of my best friends moved away this week from Baltimore. Um, maybe it's I had to give three talks last week and I give three more talks this week. Maybe it's I'm just tired. You know, and, and the thing about like being at, at burnout is rest doesn't heal burnout. Like playing golf or watching a movie or ta- taking a day off, it doesn't, if it, rest heals exhaustion, it doesn't heal burnout. And maybe you're just emotionally weary, emotionally tired. Can, am I allowed to say me too? And I really believe that I'm more effective to you as a minister of the gospel by being real than I am by being impressive. I'm just going to be real, like, sometimes I read the Bible, sometimes I preach the Bible, and I'm like, I don't really got anything to say. Maybe you feel similarly today. You come here, and you're weak and wounded, sick and sore. Maybe you're burnt out from being a parent. You can't do one more bath time, one more bedtime. Maybe you're burnt out from your job. You're tired of back-to-back 10-hour shifts at night. Maybe you're burnt out from your family, burnt out from your friend, burnt out from church. I don't know what you're burnt out from. But as the Lord would have it, as he always does, he brings us to a text that is so relevant to what we're going through, what I'm going through. I think the Ephesians were feeling like this when they were reading this letter. I think Paul maybe was even feeling like this when he was writing this letter. Because in this section of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul here, he's transitioning from talking about the unity of the church, how God has brought all the different people groups of the world together in one new man in the church. And then he begins to pray in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1. And the first line of his prayer is, for this reason. But you'll notice at the end of verse 1, you see that little dash at the end of the verse? You know what that dash means? It means there's a sidetrack, there's an interruption. Because Paul starts to pray and then he interrupts his own prayer. I don't know if it's ever happened to you when you start praying and you're like, oh, I gotta add this to my to-do list. Or you get distracted by this random thought. Did you know that happened to the Apostle Paul? In the Bible, he's praying in the Bible and he goes off this, this rabbit trail. And we know this because he picks up this same prayer in verse 14 
with the same phrase, for this reason. So he starts out, verse 1, for this reason, dash, whole tangent, and then verse 14, for this reason. Oh, I forgot, I was praying. There's this digression in verses 1 through 13, this sidebar, this Holy Spirit-empowered rabbit trail. And this prayer-interrupting ramble really has one point. He says it at the end of verse 13. You look at it with me. This is really the, the summary. So I ask you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. He's, about, he's praying and he's like, you know, actually, let me just do this little sidetrack. All because I don't want you to lose heart. I don't want you to grow weary. I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you ultimately to quit. And so that is our one action step this morning. Let's not quit. And we'll see that emphasized in three points that Paul gives us. First point is that life is hard. The second is grace is wonderful. And the third is church is glorious. So don't lose heart. Let's jump in and, and see. Paul is really showing us that life's really hard. He's telling the Ephesians here not to be discouraged because he's in prison for having tried to reach the, them with the gospel. Let me give you an example of what I mean. A couple of years, I think it was a year ago, my friend Andrew Garner, he's one of our church planning residents, he came to my house to watch the Super Bowl, I believe it was, and he unknowingly, it was like his first week in Baltimore, he unknowingly parked in a handicapped parking spot, and he was at my house watching the Super Bowl, he goes to leave and finds his car has been towed, ends up paying $1,000 for that fine, right? Now, it was his car, his fault, his money, not my problem. <laughs> But for some reason, I felt guilty. Why? Why did I feel guilty? It wasn't my mistake. It wasn't my fault. I felt guilty because he was at my house when he got towed. And I think that's a little bit of how the Ephesians are feeling here is because Paul has given his life to minister the gospel to the Gentiles, to them. And it's in the process of trying to serve these people that the Romans imprison him and, and, and torture him and ruin his life. And so Paul, that's why he's saying, don't be discouraged by, by the sufferings I'm doing on your account. You look at verse 1, Paul calls himself a prisoner. Verse 13, he says he's, he's suffering. He even says in verse 1 that he's a prisoner on behalf of you Gentiles. So he's saying, I am all these things, but don't feel guilty about it. Because he's essentially saying, I'm a voluntary prisoner. I'm a voluntary sufferer. Notice he doesn't say he's a prisoner of Caesar. He's not a prisoner of Rome, though he is. He's saying, I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus in the first couple of verses. Because Paul knows who's really in charge of everything. And the reason he's imprisoned and suffering, the reason his life is so hard, verse 2, is because it says that he was given a stewardship of God's grace. Stewardship means you're given something to manage that doesn't belong to you. God gave Paul the stewardship of bringing the gospel to the Ephesians, to the Gentiles. And this job, this stewardship, was tougher than he could handle on his own, and it led to suffering, this apostleship to the Gentiles. It meant life was hard for him. And did you know that God has also given you a stewardship? Now, it's not apostle to the Gentiles, trust me. 
But you have been called to manage something that isn't your own, right? And for each of us, it's something unique to display His glory. Each of us has a unique privilege, taking care of something God gave us. Maybe it's those kids you have. Maybe it's that unique job you have. Maybe it's that friend that God is ministering His grace through you to that friend who's suffering. You probably have a few things you're stewarding. I think about my stewardships that are really heavy on my heart that I think about a lot are my three boys. I mean, raising three boys in this day and age is tough. Yesterday was April Fool's, and my son left a fake turd by my bed yesterday. <laughs> and then my wife, <laughs> my wife made a snack called fake poop, which I, I don't know why I'm sharing this. It was chocolate, but it was like, I, I don't know, our, our family apparently is obsessed with these things. We're just trying to raise boys in the 21st century, guys. We're just trying, okay? I have the stewardship also of loving and leading my wife, which I need to do better of because she's making fake poop as a snack. I have the stewardship of, of helping lead this church. I have the stewardship of, of preaching the scriptures to your life, to your soul every week. These are heavy stewardships. These aren't mine. These, are, these aren't responsibilities that I earn, that I own. God gave them to me. Those are God's kids. That's God's daughter that I'm uh, loving and leading. This is God's church that he bought with his own blood that I'm helping lead. These are all unique stewardships. We each have them. That have been trusted to us. And these stewardships are often very challenging, aren't they? They often lead, lead to their own version of suffering, as Paul would say. Their own version of imprisonments, as Paul would say. I miss quiet nights watching sports. I don't get them as much anymore. Because I have three little boys. I miss coming on Sunday morning and just listening to someone speak over my life. I'm the one doing the speaking. You have these things too. And you, you would think that Paul, who is the Hebrew of Hebrews, who has given his life to reach the people he hates, he used to hate the Gentiles. The people he says, he says in Galatians 6 that he bears the mark of, marks of suffering on his back. He literally has whipping scars on his back trying to love this people group, but being tortured in the process. This man is in prison, and he, all he's doing is trying to love Jesus and manage the grace that God has given him to steward, and he's just getting hit after hit after hit. You would think Paul might have a little bit of an easier life, right? Maybe a little bit more blessing? But here he is, he's writing the Bible in prison. What the heck, God? Why is this so freaking hard? I'm doing what you asked me to do. I think Paul is, is interrupting his own prayer and writing this section saying, don't lose heart, because the Ephesians are thinking, and I bet, I bet Paul in this prison cell is also thinking at times, really, God? All I'm doing is being faithful. All I'm doing is giving you what I got. All these times I've said no to you and yes to God. I mean, Paul's literally, man, laying everything he has for Jesus. And where has it gotten him? chained to a prison guard. Thanks. He's sitting there with scars on his back. The psalmist says it like this in Psalm 73, Why, God, do the wicked prosper 
Why are the wicked happy and rich? But for me, the pure in heart, my feet are slipping. All day long, I feel like I've been stricken. Has all of my innocence and all my purity been in vain? The psalmist says. And maybe you look around at your friends who aren't Christians. You look around at the world around you and say, I want what they have. And here I am giving you everything I got. And what is up with this? Here's the lie you and I are tempted to believe. That life should only be hard for bad people. You and I, deep down, internally, want to believe that life should only be hard for bad people. Somewhere deep in our soul, we are clinging to this thought that if we are good, God will make our life easier. He will make our life better. And that is simply untrue. It's just a, it's a lie. God will make your life easier if you're good. Tell that to the family of the pastor and his family whose nine-year-old daughter was just shot to death in Nashville. If life should only be hard for bad people, then Jesus must have been a pretty awful person because his life was hard. And what I want you to see is that Ephesians and all the entire Bible, more than any other religious book in history, unflinchingly acknowledges the hardship of life. Hardship of the Christian life. The Bible is never going to back off from this truth. Life's going to be hard and it always will be as sin rules and reigns in this broken world. And especially for God's people as they are attacking the forces of darkness. Scriptures say there is always, there will be suffering for those who are in Christ. And so we, you and I, should not be surprised when we endure what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. Because it's par for the course for the Christian. I mean, baseball players aren't surprised when they get hit by a baseball. Soldiers aren't surprised when the enemy shoots at them across enemy lines. And Christians are not surprised when we feel weary from the stewardships of God's grace that he has entrusted us to manage. Paul is acknowledging it. The very fact he says at the end here, so don't lose heart, means we are tempted to quit. We are tempted to say, I'm done with this. I'm doing my own thing now. Lose heart, what it literally means is to give in to evil, to grow weary, to run away. And so are you here this morning, tired, weary, weary, wounded, wanting to run away from it all, wanting to give in to sin? Welcome to Christianity. And so Paul says, don't lose heart. I know life is hard. Again, I don't know what you've been called to steward. And I bet you're tempted right now to cut some corners, to throw in the towel, to focus on yourself and to be bitter, to fall into despair. And when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ as you struggle and as you suffer, it's not going to give you the specific reason why you're going through what you're going through. Looking at the cross will not tell you exactly why you're suffering right now. But looking at the cross will tell you the reason, what the reason isn't. 
The reason isn't that God doesn't love you. The reason can't be that he has abandoned you. The reason can't be that he isn't for you. I know life is hard, but on the cross we see that God pledged his forever love to you. He committed to making you a part of his eternal plan. And it's his promise that he will never, ever, ever abandon you. And he will soon come and take you home. So yes, life is hard. It was hard for Paul. It was hard for the Ephesians. It was hard for Jesus. And it's going to be hard for you. It's going to be hard for me. And we have to recognize this. And if you're going to follow Jesus, that means you're going to have a story like Jesus, which involves a death and then a resurrection. So you need to be ready to have your deaths. And one day we will have our resurrections. Life's hard. Second point, just to encourage you, Paul says here, I know it's hard, don't lose heart, and don't forget that grace is wonderful. Let this feed you, endure you along the way. Three quick truths related to grace, Paul says to encourage us, that we have a mysterious grace, we have a scandalous grace, and we have an unsearchable grace. The first thing Paul talks about when it, as it relates to grace is that we have been given a mysterious grace. What exactly was it that Paul was preaching to the Ephesians before he got put in jail? Well, he tells us here, I believe it's in verse 3, the mystery of Christ. That's what he's preaching. Now, he calls the gospel the mystery of Christ because it's something that has been progressively unfolding to the people of the world. Mystery here doesn't mean what you and I tend to think about mystery, you know, like um, it's a game of clue and we have to figure, put the pieces together and figure it out on our own. No, secret or mystery here uh, more so means something that can only be revealed to you by God's power. That's the mystery. It has to be revealed to you by God's power because you would never believe it on your own. It's a mystery because it reverses what we tend to naturally think. We, you and I tend to think if we're good, then God will bless us. You and I naturally think if I don't sin, then God will give me heaven. Well, the, the mystery of the gospel is that actually you can never be good on your own and you need to receive outside righteousness from Christ to then be made good. And life will be hard until you die and then he takes you home to heaven. That's why it's a mystery. You wouldn't figure it out on your own. The mystery is that it's an upside-down life for the Christian. You must die to live. You must serve to be served. You must give up glory to get glory. This is why it's all mystery. So if you love Knives Out, version 1 and version 2, you're going to love the Bible because it's an unfolding mystery. With an even crazier twist. And this mystery... Ultimately, is that God has solved the hostility of the world. This is building off what we talked about last week by bringing all of humanity together, Jew and Gentile, into one church. Verse 6 says that we have been made together as God's people, fellow heirs of God, members of the same body, body of Christ, and partakers of the promise of Jesus. And so, essentially, boiling it all down, the grace that encourages us not to give up is that you are a part of the unfolding mystery of the universe. And that mystery is that you have been given a double union. A union with Christ and a union with Christ's people. Now why does that matter? Why does that encourage us? Because when you're unified with Christ, that means you're given everything he is, has, and made everything he is. 
Jesus' perfect, sinless record, that's yours now. What a mystery. Jesus' lifetime of achievements, those are pinned to your chest now. What a mystery. The very love that God the Father feels for the Son, Jesus, is yours now. What a mystery. The eternity that Jesus earned forever, that's yours now. What a mystery. And a million other blessings, many of which we read in Ephesians chapter 1, are all yours. What a mystery. We're not just unified with Christ. The other part of the mystery is, again, we're unified with Christ's people, that he has opened wide the doors of his home, and God has said every tribe, every tongue, every nation, no matter who you are, what you do, where you come from, how you've lived, you're welcome to join my family. I want to adopt you. And what also that means, part of this mystery, is that even when life is hard, which it always tends to be at some point, you're not alone. God's brought you into his family, and you have other people. I mean, look at the person to your left. Look at the person to your right. That's the person God has given to you. What a mystery. You've been unified with Christ. You've been unified with his people. I was, actually, I was reading, um, there's a famous book on mental health called The Body Keeps the Score. I was reading this yesterday. And it said, you know the most important factor in your mental health? The most important factor when it comes to healing from all the, the sorrow and trouble you've experienced in life? The most recovering thing you can do is feel safe around other people. When you feel safe around other people, the soul begins to heal itself. The mystery is God has provided that people you can feel safe around. It's the church. It's him. Now I know, I know, I know, this might not solve all of your immediate problems. It doesn't make parenting easier. It doesn't make your job easier. It doesn't make your friendships at times easier. It won't solve your immediate problems, but it does solve all of your big eternal problems. And you can rejoice this morning because your biggest problem has already been solved. And the other problems seem a lot smaller when we revel in, in the solutions of the mystery God provides here. And so whatever you're dealing with today, can I just encourage you? Your sin's been forgiven, past, present, and future. You're good with God right now if you're in Christ. And you have a family, an imperfect family, but you got a people you can feel safe around. Let the mysterious grace, the unfolding plan of God, encourage you here. Second truth about grace is it's scandalous. Look at verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. So he transitions here, not just talking about the mystery of our union with Christ and with each other, but to the scandal that God would save me. Do you think it's a scandal that God chose to save you? Or do you think, yeah, that makes sense. I'm a pretty good candidate. If God looked at my eHarmony profile, he'd click, he'd swipe right. No, you're a fool if you think that. Paul in the past has called himself the least of the apostles. Here he calls himself the least of all Christians. I mean, if you were to look at this room and say, I'm the worst sinner here, that's when you begin to understand Christianity. Because you know your sin more than you know anyone else's sin. You know your unworthiness more than you know anyone else's unworthiness. You know the deep crevices of your dark heart more than anyone else ever could. And even our feigned attempts of looking good are really, when God sees them, gross. It's a scandal that he saved me, Paul says. 
This is the murder of Christians saying, I can't believe I get to be apostle to the Christians now. And we all can say a version of this. You know, what's interesting too is Paul here in this section, in verse 5, he, called, he says the holy apostles. But then in, I think it's verse 7, he says that he's the least of all the saints. So, at the, you know, Paul was an apostle. So at the same time, he's calling himself in this passage holy and the least, which is kind of an interesting juxtaposition, isn't it? How can he be holy, set apart, special, but at the same time, the least? You see, an encouraging reality for every Christian that's going through a tough time isn't that you're just not alone and that you're unified with Christ and with his people, but that you are simultaneously nothing and everything at the very same time. You deserve far worse than you've gotten, and you're far more loved than you can ever imagine right now. Let me explain what I mean by this. You guys ever seen the movie Ratatouille? That great theological cartoon? I, I watched it with my kids the other day, and I thought it was just a beautiful picture of this, this, this reality. There's a, you know, a character named Alfredo Linguini, who, um, which is a great name. He works at this famous restaurant, five-star restaurant, and he's such an incompetent fool that he can't even sweep the floor without messing everything up. He barely makes it as the janitor of the restaurant, and he's still messing everything up. What happens in the movie, though? Somehow this little rat scurries into his hat and starts controlling him, and he's suddenly a five-star chef. He's suddenly making food that all of France travels to this restaurant to eat his food. And throughout the film, you see it is really the rat underneath the hat that is giving him the power to create this blessing to all these different people. And what happens the minute he and the rat fight and the rat runs away? He's an incompetent fool again. He can't make a thing. He can't even sweep the floor. And throughout the film, Alfredo Linguini Whenever someone compliments him or, or is in awe of his cooking prowess, you know what he says? It's not me. He can genuinely, honestly, earnestly say, it really isn't me. I can't really tell you it's the rat in my hat, but it's not me. And essentially what Paul is saying about each one of our lives is that if there's anything good in my life, if there's any holiness in me, if there's any blessing upon your life from me, if you have if you received anything worth receiving from me, it's not me. I am the worst person in the room without the Spirit of God entering in not my hat, but in my heart and making me alive when I was, according to Ephesians 2, dead. I was in the grave. I was as useful to you as the corpse in the graveyard. He came and made me alive. What grace. The fact that there's anything good in my life is really his power and grace. I would be struggling to mop the floor right now if it weren't for him. I mean, just think about, honestly, think about how much more horrible your life would be right now if you didn't have the Spirit of God changing you and making you new and blessing you as he has been. What would you look like without Jesus? What a mess. I don't know if I'd still be married. I don't know if I, I would still be on the side of the road crying. 
The fact that there's anything good in me, in you, is God's Spirit having come and made us somewhat alive. Fully alive. I mean, what did Samson have when his hair was cut and the power of God left him? Nothing. What do you have without God's grace and power over you, even less than what you do now? And so he's saying, this scandalous grace, let it encourage you because you actually have more than you deserve. Your problems are pretty good problems, usually. I think about my problems. Back, back when I was 23, I would love to have these problems when I was 20, 22. And here I am at 33, like, oh, these problems are killing me. Can we just sit back and revel in the scandalous grace? Like, thank God for these problems. No matter how bad you have it today, you have been ratatouille. And that's something we're celebrating. You have a scandalous grace. And then finally, he says, you're under the grace section. You have unsearchable grace. What is Paul preaching? You notice he says he's preaching the mystery of Christ and then that he is the least of all the saints. And then I have been given this charge to preach what he says, the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a sentence, huh? Do you actually know that word unsearchable is a word that Paul made up? He like created it, like kind of like super fragilistic espialidocious. He just made it up because you won't find this word unsearchable anywhere else outside of biblical Greek. He says this un, un, impossible to be fully searched grace, impossible to be fully searched Christ. You may know this, we got a lot of smart scientists, explorers in the room, but did you know that we've only discovered 5% of our Earth's ocean floor? 5% of our ocean floor. You know, we've actually discovered more of space and Mars and the moon than we have our, the floor of our own planet. In fact, there's a part of the ocean called Marianas Trench, which is near Australia. That ocean floor is deeper than Mount Everest is tall. And there are species and wonders in Marianas Trench that have yet to be discovered. There's all kinds of fish we don't even know exist, you know, with the kind of weird ones with like light on the end of their, their heads and, and weird teeth and kind of things that would like look like they're science fiction. They exist and we don't know they exist yet because there's unsearchable riches on the floor of this ocean. And you could spend literally 10 lifetimes trying to discover the ocean floor and still just scratch the surface of its depths. And Paul is saying here, how much more so it is with the maker of these wonders. Does the infinite galaxies of space that are continuing to expand cause you to wonder? How much more so for the being that made these things? He's saying here, you've just snorkeled in the kiddie pool when it comes to God's glory. And you'll, you'll begin to realize that you understand the gospel when you know that you know nothing. Romans 11.33, how unsearchable is his wisdom? How inscrutable his ways? Job says, his creation and his providence are unfathomable. And the reason this is encouraging to us is because Paul is saying, I know life is hard. I know you're discouraged. But trust me, there are still treasures you have yet to discover. There are still truths about Christ 
that will illuminate and refresh you that you have yet to acknowledge and know. And oftentimes, just like digging treasure, we have to dig without seeing the gold. Oftentimes, we are in what St. John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul, grasping at truths that will warm our hearts, not knowing if they will come, but they will come. St. John says that life becomes hard and we enter the dark night of the soul because that is how God takes us from immaturity to maturity in the Christian faith. What does that mean? Because when you are going through an unfathomably difficult period of your life, what is happening is God is weaning you off every other comfort and, and connecting you to the one true comfort that you need for eternity. He's essentially saying, you and I dig in all these other empty holes to find treasure. But he, he takes away all these other treasures we cling to so that we can dig at the one true treasure, the unsearchable riches of Christ. And it is in the darkness of the soul, when life is hard, that we grow into mature Christians and we find those treasures that make us more like him forever. So let the unsearchable riches of Christ, let the Mariana's trench of Jesus satisfy your soul. Continue to search and don't quit searching because you will find treasure that will comfort you. Life is hard. Grace, though, is wonderful, isn't it? We got an unfolding mystery that we're a part of. We have a scandalous grace we did not earn, but we still received. We have an unsearchable Christ in whom there are treasures and rubies and diamonds that we have yet to find, and when we find them, we will be richer than we have ever known. And right now we are rich. And then finally, we have a church that's glorious. We are a part of a church that is glorious. This verse is one of the most incredible statements in the New Testament. If you get nothing else, man, let this encourage your soul. Verse 9. Paul's talking about his ministry. He's preaching the riches of Christ, the mystery of Christ. Verse 9, he wants to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Here it is, verse 10. So that, so that meaning this is the ultimate end, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. The manifold here means multicolored, or multifaceted, or many-sided. It's actually the very word used to describe Joseph's multicolored robe. There's all kinds of different elements. It's like a diamond. You turn it around, you see all these different colors you didn't see unless you turned it. And what Paul is talking about here is, is the church is revealing God's manifold wisdom. And when he says the church, he's not talking about our services like, like this. He's not in a sense of like our, our superstar pastors or our superstar musicians. He's not talking about the church's social action out in the city. He's not talking about any additional activity by God's people that's a revelation of wisdom. Rather, he's saying simply our existence as the church, as a new multiracial family united under King Jesus, these hostile groups have been brought together as one. Together, that is the manifestation of God's richly diverse wisdom to the world. 
It's how God's wisdom is being made known to who? He says it here, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, what does that mean? It's literally talking about angels and demons. And this is where it gets wild and encouraging. Scholars say that Paul is particularly pointing out demons in this text. The word authorities here can also mean antichrist. And so essentially, just sum it all up, what he's saying is the church, the local church, as it is right now, is telling the demons of this age that their reign is coming to an end, that God is accomplishing his eternal plan, and what Christ has promised is and will come to pass. What, like, when we, as different cultures and ages and vocations and personality profiles, come together as one family, we are displaying a tangible reminder to the demonic forces of the universe that their authority is broken, that their power is frail, and their destruction is imminent and certain. This is a revelation that what God has done has been done. The church is like a, a sort of nuclear countdown that the destruction of the demons is, is near. Because what, what Paul is saying is that in the church, we get a glimpse of what the new creation will look like. We get a glimpse of what heaven is supposed to be. And again, Paul is not talking here about the ideal church, the perfect church. I mean, none of the churches Paul dealt with were ideal in the New Testament. I mean, the church in Acts was, had hungry widows. The church in Corinth had people getting drunk during communion. We don't got that problem. We're better than them. I don't, I don't think we do. Please don't get drunk during communion. Even the church that Paul's writing to, the church in Ephesus, will soon after this be told by Jesus that they've forsaken their first love. So Paul's not talking about the perfect church, or the ideal church. He's just talking about the church as it is, imperfect, with black eyes and holes and problems. And even in the imperfect church with Meth labs on the first floor, and, and I don't know what that is on the side, the, like the, the plastic that's guarding, I don't know what this is. The awkward hellos and, 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 and imperfect C-minus sermons. Even in that imperfect church, it is a declaration. Demons, you're done for. I mean, his, Paul is talking to some house churches here. I mean, these people are probably, these Christians and these new Christians are probably meeting in their tiny homes in Ephesus, probably by candlelight, just a few of them. And they're probably looking at each other thinking, wondering, how does this little gathering do anything to affect the unseen demonic powers of the universe? And Paul, yet, he's saying to them, no, 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 you don't understand. When you just gather and exist together in your small house church as a group of different types of people under the same risen Christ, something cosmic is taking place. And it's not the speaker, it's not the band, it's not the ministries. It is the very existence of you together that is a declaration to the visible and invisible world that God has already won. If you're a part of the church, if you're here right now, you are a part of a cosmic sermon being preached to the spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. And what Paul is saying is that the angels are looking at us just sitting next to each other, just hugging. Like when, a, when me, a Palestinian man, a Christian, hugs a Jewish Christian, 
When, you, when a Democrat and Republican are sitting in gospel community together, sharing their struggles with one another, doing life together. When an old person invites a young person into their home and they have coffee together. Just these very simple, seemingly mundane things is the declaration, demons, knockout punches come in any minute now. Because what we're seeing is a revelation of a glimpse of what heaven's going to be like. And you're not going to be there. And the angels simultaneously look and long to see these things because they're cheering. They're freaking out like, oh my gosh, God's plan is actually happening. These people are together under Christ. And all the demons can do as they watch us do life together, as they watch us sit under God's word together, as they watch us pray and comfort one another amidst our life's hardships, all they can do is slither around like a rattlesnake with its head cut off, trying to bring you down with them, trying to get you to think what we're doing right now isn't that important, to get you to focus on other little mini treasures that aren't really treasures at all, and to miss out on the cosmic sermon being preached to the heavenly realms. But they are hopeless. They are writhing in agony. And our very songs, our very prayers, our very communion, our very preaching is a revelation that they are done for. And doesn't this just give even greater significance to our church's five-year anniversary? Just the very fact we've existed for five years is a sermon to the angels saying what we have done, what God has done, is worked. And the demons in Baltimore are like, crap. (laughs) God's plan's working. And this is why Paul is saying, don't be discouraged by my sufferings. Don't be discouraged by my imprisonment. Because the fact that you exist as a church together in Ephesus makes it all worth it. Like when we gather tonight for our family meeting to do a lot of unimpressive things, sing, pray, make church business decisions, you are gathering as an affront and attack against the principalities and powers of this world. And the demons are fearing and trembling what we do. And what, if, what a tragedy to miss out on this. Do you know 81% of Christians believe you can be a Christian and not be part of a local church? 81%. And Paul looks at that and says here, that's inconceivable. You can't be a Christian and miss out on this cosmic sermon. And that's why in the next section, he's going to pray for the church. And then in chapter 4, he's going to talk about the unity of the church. And then in the end of chapter 4, he talks about how he's gifted each one of us to serve the church. And then chapter 5, he says our marriages should look like Christ in the church because the church has cosmic significance. And just to wrap this point up, how would you feel if you knew there was a, a stadium full of angels watching you right now, hanging on the edge of their seat, cheering you on, saying, don't give up, keep going. What you're doing is unbelievable. The fact you're sitting here hearing God's word preached, that's amazing. And all the demonic forces that cause sh- school shootings, that help create murder and depression and anxiety and fear, those Wretched demons writhe in agony every time you open your Bible with God's people. Every time you show up here, 
they're like, we're losing. And you and I, just by being here, get to punch the devil in the face and have fun doing it. That's the significance of the church. And so you want an application point from this? That li- I know life is hard. I know grace is wonderful. I know church is glorious. Here's an action point. Verse 13. Because of all this, don't lose heart. Don't give in. Don't quit. Over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. I mean, that's it. Just don't leave. Don't stop gathering. Pretty simple stuff. Because even our gathering is an exclamation point to the sentence, God won. What does it mean when he says he's suffering for their glory? Essentially what he's saying there is that because I, Paul, have not quit, I have not lost heart, you guys are going to be glorified. Because I kept going, I've managed the grace that God steward, gave me to steward, you guys are Christians now. You have Jesus. And isn't it our hope that we would look back at a trail of people in our life, our kids, our family, our church, our friends, our city, and there would be an army of people in heaven saying, thank you for not losing heart. Thank you for not quitting because your perseverance led to my glory. You keeping going led to me knowing Jesus. And I just want to close with 1 Peter 5.10, which has been a comfort to my soul, which is just a reiteration of this point, that Peter says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. The reason I love this verse is because it tells me my suffering is little compared to what's to come. And this text says that he, God himself, will restore me soon and very soon. He's not going to delegate that restoration to the angels. He's not going to get his assistant to restore. He's coming to restore me. And soon, very soon, I will be confirmed. I will be strengthened. And I will be established. Even though life is hard, I remember grace is so wonderful. And what we're doing as a church is so glorious. I ain't giving up. And I hope you won't either, friend. The angels are cheering. And the demons are squealing. Oh, that's good. I just thought of that. (laughs) On that note. (laughs) I'm going to end there. (laughs) Let's pray. Lord Jesus. I'm so tempted to think, what the heck? I'm doing everything you asked me to do. I'm stewarding the grace you gave me to steward. Why is this so hard? I'm tempted to to delve into laziness. I'm tempted to delve into sin. I'm tempted to just walk out and quit. Because this is way harder than I thought it'd be. And I... I need your help right now. We need your help. Help us to see the wonder of grace today. Help us to see the mystery we are a part of that is greater than any other mystery in the world. 
Help us to remember the scandal of grace. You saved me. I don't deserve it. Uh, thank you for the blessings you've given me that on my own, I would be such a mess. Thank you, God, that the church is glorious. Help me to endure. May my life be a cheering point for the angels. And may my life be a, a, a place of cowering for the demons. When we walk through the door, may every demon scatter and flee, knowing we're walking there. And ultimately, Lord, I pray that you would help each of us not to lose heart, that we would not quit. What we're doing is too important. It's for the glory of the people who don't know yet know, know Christ. And so, in faith, we proclaim, we're going to keep going. But we need your help to do that. Help us today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you stream your podcasts. To find other messages or get more information about Redemption City Church, visit us online at rccbaltimore.org. Thank you for listening to the Redemption City Church podcast. Thank you.